what's your problem? <laughs> what's that? How, how long have I got? I probably should have rehearsed the tone of delivering this line because uh, it can come across in a variety of ways. What's your problem? Y- you know, whether we're uh, rich or poor or skinny or fat or male or female or young or old or employed or unemployed or drug addicted or sober, we've got problems. <laughs> Graham's got problems, he's just admitted to it, the first uh, amongst sinners or something. Uh, maybe, maybe the second. I don't know. <laughs> well, you know what I'm saying. You know, we've all, we've all, got, we've all got stuff going on. And um, it's the case as I talk to people, increasingly I find out that you guys are like me, that we've got problems. Um, it's the case that for, for many of us, uh, there is one or two problems in the way of where we feel we need to go. Uh, we might have some sort of vision of the good life, of what our life should be like, uh, and then there are barriers in between us and that place. Uh, isn't it something of the human condition that we're always striving for the next thing, always yearning for something more. We've got this picture in our hearts and minds of what life should be that we always seem to be falling just slightly short of. It's going to be Christmas. It's going to be 2020. It's going to be the new job. It's going to be the new house, the new car, whatever it is. We've got this picture of what life should be like. And then we've got problems that so often stop us from getting there. I um, am wondering this morning what your problems are. Uh, What is stopping you from stepping into that ideal life, from living the life that you want to? What is it that disqualifies you? Maybe you actually feel disqualified. For many of us as Christians, we sort of feel like we're not the first-rate saints that we wish that we would be. That is what we pay Pastor Graham to be on our behalf, right? That's the, that's the church model that you're going for, right, Graham? We, yeah. Yep. <laughs> you carry uh, that, that you carry, <laughs> you carry that all for us. Uh, perhaps it's something that incapacitates you. Perhaps, perhaps uh, you feel like you've got an addiction, uh, you've, got, you've got a character flaw that manifests in an addiction or something like that. And that is what disqualifies you. That's what incapacitates you. You can't quite get over that barrier into the place that you're supposed to be. I've, uh, you know, I I read uh, a bit with the jobs that I get to do. And I was coming across this term fairly regularly, uh, not so long ago. And I was doing that thing that We all do when we read a word that we don't really understand the meaning of. And we go, I think I know enough of what that word means to not look it up and keep reading and it'll, you know, it'll make sense as I go. And I had probably done that one too many times and I thought, I better look this word up because I actually have no idea. Uh, I'm hearing it all the time, I'm reading it all the time and um, what use uh, is this reading if I'm missing a key concept? And... I'm going to flash this word up on the screen for you in a moment. Uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me if some of you know this word. In a wonderfully diverse, sort of politically diverse and culturally diverse church like this one, it wouldn't surprise me if uh, some of us have different reactions to this word. Some will go, that's a useful term. 
um, some of you will go, oh, the kinds of people who use that term, they're the problem. Um, one of our problems. But I think it is a useful term, even just for my purposes today. Yeah, and you can, um, you can send me an email and say, couldn't you have thought of a better word than intersectionality? <laughs> I said sectionality, Jenny. So intersectionality is the interconnected nature of social categorizations such as race, class and gender as they apply to a given individual or group regarded as creating overlapping and interdependent systems of discrimination or disadvantage. Yeah. <laughs> so the, the basic idea of it is uh, we got problems, right? But some of us have more problems than others. So let's say in a context where uh, race can be a problem, and there's most contexts race can, can be a challenge for people. Let's say uh, your race is a minority race. Let's say the race that you're a part of is kind of stigmatised where you're at. And so there's a chance that if two candidates go for the job interview and because you're your race and the other candidate's a different race, they might be more likely to get the job just based on race alone. That stuff doesn't happen here in Australia, does it? But the thing that's kind of handy about this idea of intersectionality is that it's a recognition that one single category of who you are isn't the whole story. So you could be a Sikh in Australia, uh, who's driving a DD, and um, lots of uh, DD drivers are Sikhs, and I get to talk to a lot because we're a one-car family, and I'm running late a lot of the time. And uh, lots of Sikhs have told me the experience of being mistaken for somebody who's not Sikh, and it's not a good thing. So Australians are a bit suspicious of me because I'm wearing a turban and I've got a beard. That could be an instance where being Sikh is like a negative, you know, you experience it as a discrimination or a disadvantage. At the same time, uh, there's an increasing amount of Sikhs here in Brisbane and you'll meet Sikhs who are really successful business owners, you'll meet Sikhs with PhDs, you'll meet Sikhs who might not identify as disadvantaged because there's other factors at play, right? Uh, it's not uh, a matter of just because you're a woman or a man, you're going to be disadvantaged. That's what's kind of handy about this term. I think it, it recognises that the problems that we have are complicated and they're dynamic. Here's a little uh, picture that came up when I searched for the term, uh, what was that term? Intersectionality. Whew. So here's a a bunch of things about who we might be as human that could be advantageous or disadvantageous for us. Our ethnicity, our gender, our age, our ability, our sexuality, our education, our race, our class, our language, our culture. And you could probably think of other categories that you might want to add to that. Dimensions of who we are as people that can be an advantage or a disadvantage. So, we get what intersection sectionality is. Not even you, Graham. There you go. It's, it's perfectly clear. So it's complicated. The, the things about who we are, the kinds of problems that we have because of them are not kind of static. We can't sort of assume 
uh, that because we're a man or a woman or we're African or we're Asian or we're Caucasian, uh, that we'll have a certain set of problems. But there can be a convergence of challenges that come with being who we are. It's particularly interesting in our cultural moment here in the West because I think largely thanks to Christianity, actually, the influence of Christianity in Western culture, we've tried to sort of mitigate some of those barriers, some of those disadvantages. Uh, We've got this fundamental idea as Christians that all human beings are created in God's image. And so we all have worth because of that. Uh, We're created in God's image as uh, a Punjabi woman or an Australian male, as a Maori teenager, as uh, an African widow. We all bear God's image. And so Christian culture has tried to sort of legislate in a way that protects that, that says you shouldn't suffer just because you're different. That being said, if we look at the course of history, um, if you try to sort of stick a pin in who might be the most disadvantaged person, the person who has the, the least uh, sort of advantageous convergence of characteristics, uh, who's got the most intersectionality working against them, um, you could probably point at a few different figures. Um, you could probably imagine that that person might be a particular set of ways. Um, But that person might look something like this. You might know this picture, it's really famous. Uh, This was on the cover of National Geographic in 1985. And this young woman is sometimes called or referred to as the modern Mona Lisa. Her name is Sharbat Gula and she was Afghani. Um, and uh, she was photographed here at the Nasser Bagh refugee camp in Pakistan during the time of Soviet occupation. So she's a Pashtun, uh, who are a people who live uh, predominantly in a rural area of Afghanistan. And when she was six, her family uh, walked over the mountains from Afghanistan into Pakistan and ended up in this refugee camp where this picture was taken. Now, what has she got going against her? For one, she's female. So in most places at most times, there has been a certain set of disadvantages that have come along with being female. I don't think that's a particularly controversial thing to say. Uh, Whether they're sort of explicit kind of cultural stipulations that say you're not allowed to do this as a woman or not, Oftentimes it's just a wrapped up sort of set of expectations. So a woman, particularly in a poor area, will just have to do certain things to stay alive. She comes from the country, from a rural area. We know that about her. And this is one of those things where our categories might get a bit messed with as 21st century Australians. But across history, across the world, people who live in rural areas are predominantly poor right? If you have the means to get out of a situation where there are no facilities, where there are no conveniences, you do that. You don't stay and farm a little dirt patch of land um, if you don't have to. 
that's the way that it's worked for most of history, most places. She is an ethnic minority under the dictate of a foreign empire. So the Soviet Union was reaching into Afghanistan there, there was a war, and she isn't on the side of that war that has the privilege and power. She's had to flee her country. She speaks a language that isn't really going to open doors for her. I'm thinking actually of a lot of the women that uh, you'll be working with soon, Joy and Jenny, in Turkey. Uh, maybe if you speak English, you can use that um, if you're an Afghani. Maybe even if you speak Spanish or German or something like that. But speaking a dialect from Pashtun, probably not uh, something that most employers globally are going to look for. She's young and she's undereducated. Now, when you're young, so often uh, your sort of agency is, is, is limited, right? Decisions are made for you. You don't have the sorts of power over your situation that come with adulthood. You're dependent on your family. You might get a good uh, hand dealt to you. You might get a lousy hand dealt to you. How do you survive if you're young? It's harder. And she's undereducated. So it seems like she did some schooling in the refugee camp. She probably, living in rural Afghanistan, didn't receive any before that. And we know about this young woman that she ended up getting married potentially as early as 13, somewhere between 13 and 16. Graham was just making a comment this morning on why we can't determine how old any of the Pakistani cricket players are. Because if you live in a rural area, in a developing country, you might not know when you were born. It's not like the Pakistani Cricket Federation is trying to deceive us and uh, sneak these 26-year-old bowlers into the line who are passing as 14 or 16. How, how old? We've got a 16-year-old playing test cricket for their country at the moment. So sometime between 13 and 16, because they went and found this woman, she gets married, and that's not uncommon too. Because uh, in these sorts of situations, one meal ticket that you do have is children, right? Particularly sons. If you have sons that can do uh, work and sort of bring resources into the family, that's a good thing. There's a chance your husband only lives to 35, 40 and dies. If you get started early, you might have people who can look after you um, earlier. So this is uh, the situation of many girls in the world. Getting married uh, pretty much as soon as they can bear children and then bearing children for as long as they can bear children. That'll put an end to your schooling in a hurry. And um, some people have said uh, that one thing that uh, Shabbat might have going for us, the comment's been made that she was beautiful. Uh, and I, I, you can definitely see that. Very striking-looking girl, isn't she? But life was hard to her. They found her about 15 years later, so she's probably not even 30 in this picture. And you can see that um, she has lived the kind of life, just from looking at her face, that you would expect someone in rural Afghanistan to live grueling, a lot of work, a lot of suffering. By this stage, she'd already uh, lost the husband who she married when she was 13 or 14. She'd lost some of her children. Not an unusual story. And 
to go back to this question of what your problem is, they might seem a little diminished in the face of thinking about Sherbet's circumstance, right? Maybe the problems that came to mind for you when I was asking you, well, what's in your way? What's stopping you from achieving what you want to achieve in life? What's preventing you from having a seat at the table? You might think, well, actually, um, maybe my problems aren't quite so deep. And it also might bring to mind for you the fact that there are tables and tables, right? So you might feel like you don't get an invitation to come and sit at a table that you want to sit at. Um, But for someone like Sherbet, the table that she might aspire to is a little more modest than the one that we might aspire to. And um, there are tables and tables... Uh, the, the, st- the song that we listened to this morning uh, comes from Luke's Gospel in, in chapter 14. And it tells this, uh, the, the context it comes out of is Jesus is, is dining, uh, having lunch at the home of a prominent Pharisee, it says in Luke chapter 14. And he's watching the sort of pecking order play out at that table. You might remember the story. And he's seeing that uh, there's a bit of jockeying for who gets the seat of privilege. And he goes and says this crazy Jesus thing where he says, actually, because it says in the text, they're already keeping a bit of an eye on him. They're kind of going, this guy might be trouble. And he says, actually, you guys shouldn't even invite people like this to lunch. You shouldn't invite your friends. That's kind of like natural. That, That... there might be some, it's nice to hang out with your friends, but actually the real blessing would come if you went out into the streets and you invited the poor and the lame and the lonely and the lost and the broken. And uh, you'll, you'll know about blessing then. And it says, uh, sort of anonymous, anonymously attributed, there's this person at the table that says, blessed in response to Jesus saying this rather subversive thing. Blessed is the one who will eat at the feast in the kingdom of God. And I think part of what's going on in that statement is the person's kind of saying, yeah, well, that's a very kind of earthly, fleshly way of looking at things. Um, The poor are a concern, sure. But actually, uh, whether we experience the blessing now Uh, isn't such a big deal because there's a blessing that's going to come later. So let's not get too carried away with inviting, uh, you know, all the ruffians in the neighbourhood over to lunch. Let's just uh, take some solace in the idea that God's going to, you know, have this this party with everybody. And Jesus kind of seems to reject that and drag it right back down into the real world. And that's when he tells this story the story that that song was about. So of a king who's preparing a banquet um, and he goes and sends his servant to invite a heap of people. Um, And so it says uh, that uh, one person offered the excuse, sorry, I've just bought five yoke of oxen. I think the modern equivalent of that is I'm working on my car or something. Um, And I'm on my way to try them out. Just excuse me from the feast. Another person says... I just got married, so I can't come. People are offering excuses for why they can't come. And so the king says, well, this food's not going to waste. 
go out to the highways and byways and invite everyone that you see, whoever they are, whether they add any um, sort of prestige to my table or not, I don't care. I just want people to enjoy the meal that I'm going to put on, the party that I'm going to put on. It's a rich picture, isn't it? And I think it's an appropriate one for this year at the time of Advent. That actually what we celebrate at Christmas is that God is coming into the world by extraordinary means and he's saying, I want you to be with me at that final feast. I want you to dwell with me. I want you to rejoice with me. I want you to party with me. And it doesn't matter who you are. The sorts of things that might qualify you for sitting at a fine table and eating a fine banquet in this world don't matter. In fact, they might even work against you a little bit. Because the people who end up dining with the king are the ones who could just come, right? The ones who weren't so fixated on what they were doing that they couldn't hear an invitation. That they didn't need the kind of sustenance that might be offered. And this morning particularly... Um, we're looking at the way that God says that to Mary. Um, the passage that the kids acted out for us this morning is essentially God saying, come Mary and be a part of what I am about to do. I'm about to change history. I'm about to set the world on its head. I'm about to start bringing people in to the feast It says in uh, verse 26 of the first chapter of Luke's gospel where the story uh, of Mary uh, receiving this invitation takes place. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the, the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee. I love this. Um, if you read John's gospel, there's this passage where Jesus has started to issue the comes to his disciples come and follow me you know how he says that come and follow me so he invites uh, the, the brothers uh, and then he invites someone called Philip come and follow me and it says uh, in this passage that Philip goes and grabs one of his mates Nathaniel and he says I think the Messiah is here the one that's been prophesied come follow him and Nathaniel says like what's the deal with him where is he from and when Philip says, Nazareth, Nathaniel says, you're kidding me, right? Nazareth, can anything good come from there? Nazareth was like the backwaters, right? It was a nowhere town in a nowhere region of Galilee. It was rural. Uh, I did a little bit of research into Nazareth this week and um, found a few... Uh, New Testament scholars, N.T. Wright says this of Nazareth uh, and the Galilean countryside around it. The Galilean countryside tended to be associated with the poor. There were many in that region who struggled as day labourers, small holders and so forth to avoid being crushed between the two millstones of local exploitation and foreign overlordship. Among the pressing economic issues, the problem of debt grew to chronic proportions in the first century. Another guy, William Herzog, said, while the extent 
of tribute and taxation is debated, most estimates run between 25 to 30% of a peasant's harvest. By any measure, this was oppressive, especially in light of the multiple demands on Galilean peasants for Roman tribute, Herodian taxes, and then also temple tithes. So there was a triple whammy tax on these people. Resistance to paying taxes and tributes was met with violent retaliation. Many peasants were forced to borrow to plant their crops, a move that set them on a path that often led to the loss of land through the use of debt instruments. And so I'm not sure what the picture that you have of Mary is, but when I looked at the images that often get put along for Mary, they all kind of were not quite right. They didn't quite fit with this picture that um, I've been painting of what it meant to be from Galilee. And I I don't think um, any of them were necessarily uh, more wrong than something like this. It says uh, that Mary was betrothed to a man named Joseph. So that probably means she was about the same age as this girl was when this photo was taken. Twelve. And the angel says to Mary, we know the story, you're highly favoured. And I think um, Mary might have had some reasons <laughs> to think that was a strange thing to say. Mary had some intersectionality going on. She was young. She was female in a culture that both sort of implied and prescribed that there were many things that she couldn't do. She was rural and probably poor. She was probably not educated. She was part of an ethnic minority under foreign rulership. She spoke a language that was an ethnic minority language. And God's messenger says to her, don't be afraid, you've found favour with God. You've found favour with God, you're pregnant. So... If the convergence of uh, sort of disadvantages on her life was here, you know, now, it gets worse. It gets worse. I'm going to get the the band up here. We're going to take communion in in a moment. I'm sort of not going to quite get through all my notes, but I've got enough here, I think, to make the point that I really wanted to make. Mary received good news that day. She was to be the mother of God, the mother of the saviour of the world. Many have called her the first disciple. Some have even made the case that she was the greatest disciple. And we think of the majesty of being the mother of the queen of the universe, uh, of the king of the universe in Jesus. (laughs) That was a little Freudian slip there about the queen of heaven, wasn't it? Uh, We're uncomfortable enough already that we're talking about Mary this much in a Protestant church. (laughs) 
But you, you see what I'm saying? We kind of, we, we get this picture of the grandeur of Mary, her purity. She must have been, I mean, she's often portrayed as like a, 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 grand, a sort of statuesque, middle-aged white woman. She was nothing of the sort. She received the message that God was favouring her and it meant you're going lower. <laughs> Your life is going to get more complicated. By the standards of this world, you're stepping into disadvantage, further into disadvantage. You thought you were as disadvantaged as you can get. God's going to make your life more complicated now. I think the reason why Mary, probably aside from Jesus, is you know, one of the most venerated people in history is because of how she responds to that. One more slide there, Jonah. She said, May it be to me, as you have said, I'm the Lord's servant. I just want to challenge you this morning. God says, Come, right? He says, Come to my table. We're going to come around the table in a moment. He invites you into that. The people who miss out on that party. They don't miss out because of their intersectionality. They don't miss out uh, on the grounds of things that we probably think are problems for us that stand in the way of us living the life that we're supposed to live. Whether we're too rich, too poor, too fat, too skinny. They miss out because they just don't care. They're doing their own thing. They miss out because they're so preoccupied with stuff that doesn't really matter. the rabble gets in and God decides to party with them if you can recognise yourself in that rabble and I think we're all there because we've all got problems they might be different we're perfectly positioned aren't we we're perfectly positioned to hear the invitation to come and to come so this advent hear that call God invites you come come You won't miss out for the reasons that you fear that you might miss out. You'll just miss out if you don't listen, if you don't hear that he's asking you, he's asking you, whatever your problems are. As we come and take communion, could I get the uh, the ushers up? They're going to sanitise their hands and um, they'll break the bread for you. If you want a gluten-free option or you want something that uh, isn't touched, that's fine. There's a there's some individual cups and rice crackers there. Please help yourself to that. What's amazing about Mary is that she's even written about. She's the kind of person that doesn't make history books from her, particularly in first century Palestine, you know, Jewish Palestine. She's a nobody. She's a nobody who said, may it be to me said compared to to Mary in so many ways we're all pretty big somebodies we've got a lot going for us but we can follow her we can be discipled by the first disciple of Jesus if we just recognise that so much of it is just about saying yes 
yes, it's scary. I don't know what God's going to ask of me, but I say yes. Why don't you come up and uh, grab the elements and think about Mary carrying Jesus inside of her. It might seem like a bit of a kooky idea to us, but it's not across the history of Christianity. To say, as I take this bread, I'm taking Jesus taking Jesus inside me and I'm saying what Mary said may it be to me as you have said come and feast Jesus we thank you for the way that you reveal yourself to us we thank you for the way that you choose the lowly and raise them up example of Mary this morning, someone who received your invitation and responded to it. Lord, I pray that we would respond in kind. God, I I, I pray for the, the people here before me, the challenges that they face, the things that they think might exclude them from your purpose, the things that they think might mean that they don't get a seat at the table. Thank you, God, that you don't care about that stuff. There is a seat. Let's see.